0: Welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you.
1: From Luke's Gospel, the 23rd chapter. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him, and made him carry it behind Jesus. Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. At the age of 16, Shannon Etheridge, now a popular Christian speaker, she went through a dramatic and life-changing experience. On her way to school as a teenager, she was distracted while driving, and she hit Marjorie Jarster, who had been riding her bicycle along the country road. Jarster died, and this led to intense guilt on the part of Etheridge, who was at fault, and the... Author contemplated suicide several times, but was healed by the response of Jarsfer's husband, Gary. The man forgave the 16-year-old and asked the district attorney to drop all charges brought up against her. Instead, he simply asked that Etheridge continue on in the godly footsteps that his wife had taken. God was ready to take Marjorie home, he said to the young woman 20 years ago when she was interviewed. You can't let this ruin your life, he said. God wants to strengthen you through this. In fact, I'm passing Marjorie's legacy onto you. And his reaction has forever changed her life. It allowed her to see the amazing love of God. What do you think about when you hear the word forgiveness? Forgiveness is not excusing the sin. Forgiveness is not necessarily forgetting the sin. And forgiveness is not uh, reconciliation necessarily either, at least not full reconciliation in this life. Oh, but forgiveness is something that only God can do in you. It's acknowledging that because Christ has forgiven you, you can release that person who has harmed you into the hands of God. That you do not need to carry the weight of being judge and jury and arbitrator of right and wrong. In Christ, you have been forgiven. Now you get to pass it on. In his memory, in his honor, Releasing people who have wounded you, who have scarred this planet, and say, Lord, they belong to you. I will let go of my judgment. Father, help me to forgive. In Christ, you have been forgiven, and you can forgive.
2: The second words of Jesus from Luke 23, 39 to 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save us and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus was crucified between two convicted criminals. Both could read Pilate's inscription. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Both were undoubtedly aware of his ministry. And both would watch him as he willingly gave his life for the sin of the world. Their reactions to him, however, were completely different. The one thief imitated the mockery of the religious leaders and asked Jesus to rescue him from the cross. I'm sure he had heard about Jesus who had cured the sick and even brought Lazarus back to life. He knew Jesus could do miracles but his focus was on this life and any potential for extending it. His tone and attitude, however, tells us that he didn't really expect much. Seeing Jesus hanging on the cross, bruised and battered, bleeding and in agony, he must have thought, you had a good run, but it's over. While dealing with excruciating pain and knowing he was nearing the end of his life, The second thief admitted that he was guilty as charged. He may have reasoned, if this man is indeed the promised Messiah, and if he has a kingdom, and if he has saved others, maybe he can help me too. As a Jew, he would have heard the Torah and learned of God's promise of Messiah. But somewhere along the line, his life had gone terribly off course. It took courage for him to defy The mockery of the crowd and to admonish his fellow criminal. It took faith for him to trust what appeared to be a dying king. He knew, however, that he only had trust and hope when he asked Jesus to remember him. Crucifixion was a horrible death that often extended over several days until exhaustion brought on suffocation. This particular crucifixion was during the high holy days of Passover as well as on Friday. The Sabbath would begin at sundown and it was not permissible for crucifixions to extend onto the Sabbath. So the criminals and Jesus needed to be dead by sundown. How ironic that the religious leaders instructed the Roman soldiers to hasten death. They were sacrificing the Lamb of God while the Pharisees hurried away to prepare their Passover lamb. In the King James Version, Jesus' words are, Verily, verily, I say to you. Verily comes from the Latin word veritas, or truth. According to Spurgeon, when Jesus says, Verily, verily, there's something coming that we should attend to. The fact that Jesus spoke, excuse me, the truth that Jesus spoke spoke was the assurance that the criminal would be with Jesus in heaven that day. The man was saved entirely by grace. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 remind us, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it is the will of God. Like us, the thief did not deserve it, and he could not earn it. His salvation was guaranteed by the word of Christ. The man hoped for some kind of help in the future, but Jesus gave him forgiveness and the promise of eternal life that very hour. This stanza from a hymn by William Cowper reminds us that it's at the cross where we find cleansing and forgiveness of sin. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there my eye, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away.
3: what wondrous
2: love is this
4: now to the third word on the cross, taken from John's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. While the soldiers were looking after themselves, Jesus' mother, his aunt, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene stood at the foot of the cross. Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing near. He said to her, Woman, here is your son. Then to the disciple here is your mother. From that moment, the disciple accepted her as his own mother. In the midst of the agony of the cross, we have a tender moment of personal exchange. Jesus speaks directly to his mother, watching the execution of her son, and then addresses the apostle John saying, essentially, she's your mother now. Take care of her. But there must have been times during Jesus' public ministry when Mary felt distanced from her son. Jesus treated her family, his family members as simply a part of the crowd. In Mark's Gospel, we read, Just then his mother and brothers and sisters showed up. Standing outside, they relayed a message that they wanted a word from him. He was, summoned, he was surrounded by the crowd when he was given the message, Your mother and brothers and sisters are outside looking for you. Jesus responded, Who do you think of my brother and brothers? Looking around, taking in everyone seated around him, he said, Right here, right in front of me, my mother and my brothers. Obedience is thicker than blood. The person who obeys God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Even during Jesus' childhood, Mary must have had a hint of the separation that was to come when Jesus left home and gathered entered his public ministry. Jesus was 12 years old when he went with his family from Nazareth to the feast of the Passover in Jerusalem. On the way home, Mary and Joseph, thinking he was with his relatives, realized that they had left Jesus behind in Jerusalem. In panic, they returned to find Jesus in the temple, confounding the religious leaders with his understanding. Jesus' parents were miffed, to say the least. "'Son, why have you treated us so? "'We have been searching for you in great distress.' And Jesus, seemingly unconcerned about their panic, said to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Well, Jesus was 12 years old then. Now he's in his 30s. Mary is no longer the teenage girl that had given birth to a miraculous child. Gray hair was now forming on her temples. Wrinkles had replaced her youthful skin. She probably dreaded the day when Jesus would leave home and assume the role and purpose for which he had come into the world. Though Mary knew she was his legal mother, she also knew that this child had come into the world like no other child ever had or ever would. The day of his leaving occurred when word came to Jesus that John the Baptist had started preaching, and she, Mary, saw Jesus take off his carpenter's gown, dust off his hands, and say goodbye From now on, their relationship would never be the same. Jesus, after all, was the son of man, the savior of all. She was just the means by which he came into the world. So it's all the more tender that Jesus on the cross looks down to see his mother. In the midst of his personal suffering, Jesus is fully aware of the love a mother has for a son, even if this son was a man for all. He sees His life through her eyes. He sees he's giving his life for all humanity. William Barclay catches, I think, the tenderness of this moment very well. There's something infinitely moving in the fact that Jesus, in the agony of the cross, in the moment when the salvation of the world hung in the balance, thought of the loneliness of his mother when he was taken away. Jesus understood a mother's love. Woman, behold your son. I like F.F. F. Bruce's very British translation, my lady, behold your son. This always seems so wrong for a child to die before the parents. There's a special kind of grief when this occurs. And even as Jesus is laying down his life for all of humanity, he puts his heart alongside of the woman who had dedicated herself to his care. He understands the love of mother who is watching her son go through unspeakable agony. But Jesus is also aware that Mary may be wondering what's to become of her. Who will take care of me in my old age? Who will become, what will become of my life? Jesus turns to his beloved disciple, as John likes to call himself, here is your mother. John, take care of her as if she is your own mother now. In fact, the scriptures say, from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And there is good evidence that John did just that. There is reason to believe that Mary accompanied John to Ephesus and lived out her final days there. There is even a home that has become a shrine that commemorates where Mary lived in her final days under the care of John. And it's believed that John built this house. For her,
3: we read in Matthew twenty seven forty five. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How could God have forsaken Jesus, his one and only son? Could it be that Jesus did something to forfeit the favor of God? Of course not. Jesus, as God's own son, was sinless. Well, then what did it mean for Jesus to be forsaken? abandoned, deserted? It's hard to imagine that in the midst of his physical suffering from the lacerations on his back or thorns that still pierced his head to the nails that held him to the cross, Jesus was also crying in anguish because of the separation he now experienced from his heavenly father for the first and only time in all of eternity. Did you know that it is the only time recorded in the Bible, that Jesus did not address God as Father? Because the Son had taken sin upon himself, the Father turned his back on him. God could not look upon sin, even or especially in his own Son. Just as Jesus loudly lamented, God had indeed forsaken him. He expressed his feelings of abandonment as God placed the sins of the world on him. And Jesus, for a time, felt the misery of being unaware of God's presence. It was at this time that God made him, who had no sin, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus did not die as a martyr to a righteous cause, nor simply as an innocent man wrongly accused and then condemned. It was because Jesus died As a substitute sacrifice for the sins of the world, the righteous Heavenly Father had to judge him fully according to that sin. In reality, at the cross, Jesus' separation from the Father became immeasurably more profound than anything he had experienced in his 33 years of his earthly life. The prophet Isaiah says this about the Messiah, Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. He was smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus' death on the cross redeemed us. The suffering he endured, the separation, the abandonment from his Father was due to us. And it was through his sacrifice that we can be saved from eternal death. The cross was the fulfillment of his mission to give his life as a ransom for many, and more significantly, for each one of us. Thank you, Jesus.
2: You may remain seated for this hymn. It's a very old hymn that we don't sing very often. It's not even in our hymnal. Um, So Carissa and I will sing verse 1 just to kind of remind us of the tune, and then we'll join together our voices for the next four verses. It's called Ah, Holy Jesus.
0: I thirst. The Apostle John links Jesus' statement, I thirst, to the fulfillment of Scripture. There were, in fact, at least 20 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled during the 24 hours surrounding the Lord's death. By highlighting how the Old Testament Scriptures were fulfilled throughout Jesus' crucifixion, John showed that everything was happening according to God's plan. When Jesus said, I thirst, from the cross, he may have been alluding to a prophecy in Psalms 2215, that says, My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Living Bible. In response to Jesus' request for something to drink, He is offered a drink. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. John 19.29. Wine vinegar was the cheapest and easiest easiest wine for soldiers to acquire. It was probably diluted with water. Earlier, Jesus had refused a drink of vinegar, gall, and myrrh, offered to him to relieve his suffering, Matthew 27, 34. After that, the soldiers mockingly offered him wine and vinegar, or wine vinegar, but did not allow him to drink, Luke 23, 36. But here, several hours later, and after hanging on the cross for six hours, he knew death was near, and he says, I am thirsty, thus asking for a drink. This time the soldiers give him some. This action was a fulfillment of Psalm 69, 21. They put, ga- they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. In, adding, in addition to fulfilling prophecy, a very practical reason why Jesus may have said, I thirst, is so that he might clearly and powerfully declare his final statement. So that he wanted his lips and thirst moistened to utter one final victorious shout before he died. That statement will be discussed by our next speaker. For Jesus to ask for a drink of water is a very natural thing. In fact, it was a very human thing. For a person whose mouth is parched by thirst from the lack of bodily fluids, it displays his true humanity as we believe Jesus was 100% human, 100% God. In Philippians 2, 6 through 8, we read, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now reflect with me for a minute. What if we had been there on that infamous day and observed Jesus' death like some of those in the crowd? What would we have seen? We would have seen Jesus dying like no other criminal had ever died. No cursing, no blaming, no anger. We would have witnessed the darkened sky and the terrifying earthquake, and perhaps we too would have uttered something similar to the centurion who later remarked, Truly, this was the Son of God.
5: When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John nineteen thirty. It is finished. Actually, in the original language, this is just one word. It's the word done, accomplished, completed, finished, paid. The Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus shouted this word as he took his last breaths. This was not the exhausted cry of a dying man, but rather a victor's shout of triumph. What was the meaning of Jesus' shout of victory? There are several things that Jesus accomplished by his death on the cross. The prophecies concerning his life and death were fulfilled. The mission that he had been sent to do in bringing the revelation of God as our loving Father was accomplished. His suffering had come to an end. The devil and his dark powers had been defeated. The law had been perfectly fulfilled, and the sins of his children had been paid in full. In the few moments I have, I want to focus on just one of these, the payment for the sins of his children. Listen to Colossians 2, 13, and 14 as it describes what the cross of Christ accomplished for you. You were dead because of your sins. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he freely forgave you all your sins. He canceled out, he blotted out, he erased the record of the charges against you. He cleared the record by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, God disarmed the dark powers against you. He shamed them publicly by triumphing over them on the cross. This is a fantastic passage of scripture. It explains Jesus' shout of victory. The analogy that was used here would have been fully understood by the early believers. During that time, if you owed a debt and you couldn't pay it, you were put in prison And the list of your debt was nailed to your prison door. And you didn't get out until you paid that debt. But once that debt was paid, the list was removed and stamped, paid in full, and given to you as you were released from prison. In case anyone would falsely accuse you, your stamp certificate proved your innocence. The Bible tells us that we all have a record of sins against us. We're all debtors to God. I want you to close your eyes for a minute and just create a picture in your mind of your position before God without the cross of Christ. Every selfish and unloving act, all of your love of self, rather than love of God or love of others. All the mean, insensitive words you've spoken and actions you've done throughout your entire life are on that list. Your list is so long, there is no way you can ever pay it. So the sentence that awaits you is eternal darkness in the prison of death. Now, I want you to visualize the cross of Jesus Christ. Picture God taking your list of sins from your prison door and nailing it to the cross of His Son. Do you see what Jesus did for you? He paid the price for your sins. He literally died for your sins. Now listen to what he shouts with his final breath. Finished. Visualize the hand of God reaching down from heaven and stamping paid in full across your certificate of debt. And then watch as God erases every sin off the record of your life. Overwhelming, isn't it? If you haven't already received this incredible gift of payment for your sins, I would strongly encourage you to do it right now. All you have to do is just embrace the cross of Jesus Christ. Just say, yes, God, I... I believe that your son died for my sins. If you haven't already received God's gift of forgiveness, will you truly believe that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin? Romans 4 says, Oh, what joy for the one whose disobedience is forgiven whose sins are buried. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared, has erased of all sin. Friends, we can live in the joy of Jesus' victory over sin as freely forgiven, beloved children of God. We can live like it's true, because it is, It is finished.
2: Would you stand, if you're able, as we sing Man of Sorrows?
1: Luke 23, beginning in verse 24. It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, He breathed his last. When Jesus prays, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he's quoting David in Psalm 31. David believed and Jesus knew with certainty that only in the Father's hands will our spirits be safe. Jesus said this, he says, My father who has given them to me, followers of Christ. The Father is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. John 10, 29. You know, when you think about it, we put our most valuable possessions in a safe or in a bank or perhaps somewhere hidden in your home if you still do that kind of thing. In fact, a man from Ontario, Canada some years ago, actually hid $100,000 of cash in his TV. But he forgot because he gave his TV to a friend. And that friend, decades later, gave that TV to the recycling center when it was torn apart by the workers. They discovered $100,000 in cash. The workers actually turned it into the police, and they were able to trace it back to the original owner who had no idea that his cash was not hidden in his home, safely tucked away. His treasure was returned. Lesson one don't hide your treasures in a TV. Lesson two put your treasures in somewhere where it gains interest, right? That $100,000 over three decades actually would have been well over half a million conservatively, up to a million plus. Third more important lesson. The most valuable of treasures are not things that will one day waste away. Our spirits should be committed for safekeeping. Where? In the Father's hands. Take your most valuable thing and put it in a safe place. And wherever you put it in that safe place, put it somewhere where it gains interest, where it multiplies. And put it somewhere where you know it is eternally secure. Oh, friends, what's the most important thing that you have? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We commit our spirit into the Father's hands. We trust him for our salvation, yes. And daily we entrust our spirit into the Father's hands, don't we? Every single day, every single day, we commit our spirit into the hands of God and say, Lord, use me for your glory, for your service. In our daily decisions about our money, about our marriages, our parenting, our our retirement, our health, and in all of our joys and sorrows, may that be our daily prayer. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. The most valuable thing I have, I put in the safest place it can be, and in that place where it multiplies in value, I commit. So we do not put our trust in things that fade away, nor we, do we put our valuable things in places where it won't, will not be multiplied. And we put our most prized possessions into the hands of a loving God who will never let go. And so we begin to say those words that Jesus taught us. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. as our evening comes to a close and we prepare for the Lord's table, I want to encourage you to keep Jesus' words in mind, all of these words that we have just heard and have been reflecting on. And as we receive the bread, I want to encourage you to imagine that Jesus is giving it to you by his Spirit, That you would imagine the reality that somehow in this sacrament, Jesus is present in a special way. Would you receive the bread from Jesus tonight? And as He gives you the bread, He gives you His words. It's finished. You're my beloved. I did this for you. Your life is secure. You don't have to work to earn God's love. And when the cup comes around, I want you to think of Jesus giving you that cup. This is a sign of his forgiveness. This is his reassurance of love. This is him saying, you are mine. He's declaring these words over you. Jesus asked his followers to remember his death on the cross and at that time on Friday, it looks like nothing but defeat in the darkness of that afternoon. But this costly sacrifice is actually a victory. Yes, it's a dark Friday, but we know the light on Sunday is coming. Friends, this is not a sacrament of Carmel Presbyterian Church. It's a sacrament of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's for all who have repented and confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior. Those who put their faith not in their own work, but in only the finished work of Christ on the cross. Would you pray with me? Let's spend a moment in silence silently confessing our sins. Oh Lord, hear us as we pray. Thank you for the promise of your word that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you that because of your cross that we get your righteousness. Oh Lord, thank you.
4: Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelprez.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.